Hello, and welcome to episode 169 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, welcome back home, Ian. How, how's the family? Well, you know, it's good to be back home, as they say. For the regular listeners, you'll know that last week, Jason and I were both over in Europe. I was in Stockholm. Jason was in Hamburg at, at AIX. I was in the Flight Radar 24 offices, enjoying meeting some new people and catching up with some folks who are working on some great stuff, which leads me to what we're going to talk about later in the show. Our product lead will be joining me in conversation later in the show. Lawrence Hambrook is going to tell us about some of the things that his team is working on that we're going to have in the apps and on the web in the future. Back to Jason's question. So, you know, you figure recently over the past 2 years if you travel you're at greater risk to contract covid and you know that's something that's always in the back of your mind although less so these days i guess with decreased transmission rates and everything like that as it turns out what i should have been concerned about was my kids getting covid while they stay at uh, the old sneak attack yeah the, call, the covid is coming from inside the, the house place you least expect it so my kids were staying with my wife's family. Unfortunately, my wife's aunt who watched them one day had, had gotten it and passed it on to them. Thankfully, my oldest has not had any symptoms whatsoever. You wouldn't know it without a test that he had it. The twins had some slight fevers, but now they've bounced back. So I'm thankful on one hand. On the other, I want them out of the house now. But it's been, you know, it's been an interesting week to go from having no kids and focusing, you know, completely on work and other adult things like eating food uninterrupted. <laughs> but now we're back and and that's been fun. Jason, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm home. It's nice. I don't have COVID. Excellent. Windows are open and it's nice out. So we have talked since the spring about airports and airline meltdowns that have been occurring and the problems. And I was traveling from Stockholm last week. And one of my big concerns all week since arriving there was going to be getting home. The airport itself had been a madhouse. Yeah, things are meltier than they have been in the last few yeah. weeks even. When we arrived and you know, it was kind of chaos when we arrived. We, we had to wait, like, like I mentioned last week, we had to wait nearly an hour for passport control. That's never happened to me before in Stockholm. And so I was like very kind of girding loins getting to the airport, you know, and they had mentioned that you can only get to the airport three hours before your flight. They had stopped the airport train from stopping at the terminal that we needed to get to. So it stops at the first stop and not the second stop. So you have to get off. Everybody gets off the train. Then you have to walk through. What? <laughs> yes. Real? You have to walk. Yes. You have How to walk through anyone? the airport. Well, it stops the overcrowding because it elongates the flow of passengers from basically flooding into the area. It kind of stretches things out. I get the idea behind it. And frankly, no. it because we can walk faster than some other folks. But so you, you walk into the, to the terminal hall and then they've got to Arlanda's credit, they put every vest they could find into action. 
They had people blocking the entrance to Terminal 5, standing there asking you what time your flight departed and allowing you into the terminal only if your flight departed within three hours. So we got there right at the three-hour mark and and they they let us in. And then they've got the the machine set up. They've got the check-in desk set up. They were managing the lines fairly okay. We went to scan our passports. Mine scanned just fine. My wife's, which is the brand new US passport, did not scan. I didn't even know there was a new one. Yeah, it's the for those that have kind of looked at the US passport, it's the purpley one with the plastic card in it, the, the hard plastic. I had no idea that was a thing. Identity card. I didn't either, but my wife had renewed her passport and the State Department got it back within a week. She requested the expedite service, but not like she didn't go in person or do any of the rest of it. And they got it back to her within a week. But this was, you know, before a trip. But anyway, so we tried to scan it and, the, and that didn't work. So they were like, okay, go stand in the check in line. We we're like, oh, all right, fine. That took about 40 minutes to check in. We were standing in the, the Chicago and Newark check in line for SAS. And that took about 40 minutes to get through in the regular line just to drop our bags and get our boarding passes. And then the real dread set in because security in Orlando had been, it's either, it's real hit or miss. It's either been you walk right through and there's no problems whatsoever, or it's an hour and a half wait. And the time that we were there, it was supposed to be bad. But I checked the app and it was like eight minutes, five minutes. I was like, okay, that that seems not terrible. I hope that's true. And then so we start walking and we're walking, walking, walking through the places where I had seen pictures of people standing for a long period of time. I'm like, okay, fine. So we get to the gates where you scan your boarding pass to get into the actual security screening area. There's still nobody. Get upstairs. There's still nobody. We waited maybe 40 seconds Wow, in security. It was 10 times longer in the fast track lane. <laughs> so in one of those rare circumstances, where everything just, it just worked. Okay. And I will give the airport a lot of credit. They put in a lot of procedures and they brought out a lot of people that I had never seen before, standing in places, directing traffic, making sure that queues were orderly so that people were standing in the right. Because I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things is when there's that crush of people, you don't know if you're in the right line. Yeah. So And that's like the dreaded, like, am I standing in the right line? So that's where I'll pick up the conversation, I think. Yeah. yeah I went through a couple of days after you, I think. I went through Hamburg and then connected at Heathrow onward to JFK. Thankfully, I had no issues, but it's because I played my cards right. These days, more than ever, you have to be smart about how you travel. You need to use every tool at your disposal to get from A to B, because if you misconnect, you're kind of screwed these days, since there's no availability on any other connecting flight. But I got to Hamburg about an hour after someone else I know who had gone through there, and, and they said, okay, they got their regular security in about 30 minutes. Not all that bad. Hamburg is not the greatest airport in, in in that regard. But when I got there about an hour later, I walked into the main terminal building and oh my God, I don't know what happened in that hour between she went through and I got there, but it was just chaos. And very stark contrast to you at Orlando where they had employees out there, I guess, metering people going in and guiding people, setting the lines. There was zero attempt at Hamburg's airport to make any sense of the chaos going in on in there. And and of course, it's ironic that it's the Aircraft Interiors Expo and you have all sorts of 
airline and industry well jason it's not the airport interiors expo it's not and that shows (laughs) very disappointed in the hamburg airport authority and people for doing not even the bare minimum they did literally nothing to make the experience not miserable it's a weird setup in that it's technically two terminals but it's not it's one building it's one combined security checkpoint that has two lines one for terminal one and one for terminal two i accidentally entered in terminal one and fast track was not open i said oh God, this is going to take hours. I'm missing my. I'm going to miss my flight because there are people everywhere. And on the Terminal Two side, where I was supposed to be, thankfully, Fast Track was open. But the line, the actual like set area where you're supposed to be waiting for security, is relatively small after you do your boarding pass scan. And then the line just kind of spilled out into the terminal and winded to the left, and then went to the right, and then made a little squiggle, and then went around all the check-in desks, and it was just chaos of the uh, of the line just winding everywhere and i couldn't i literally could not figure out where the end of the line was thankfully i was on business classes trip and i had fast track and that line although it was very long it took less than 20 minutes for me to get through but the regular line probably would have taken hours i'm just gonna say again i'm extremely disappointed that they made absolutely no attempt to manage the lines they could have very easily put out some ropes and, and guided people, made them go in like a zigzag fashion instead of stretching all throughout the terminal. I mean, if my local Trader Joe's can do that and have a person with a flag saying the line begins here, why can't the airport do that? It was just a much more stressful, chaotic situation than it needed to be because that airport probably in a normal day operates at maybe 60, 70% capacity and that just barely works as it is. And when you push it to 100% capacity, probably over that and don't make any changes whatsoever. It's just a miserable experience there. Yeah. The real difference between utter chaos that happened basically the week before and our chaotic but- Managed. Managed chaos that was really the people that they had kind of at each entrance to each queue saying, there's a line here. And then they had roaming people that were kind of tidying up the back end of a queue and informing people what line that was. Because we got to the end of the line that looked like it was for the SAS check-in, but that was the end of the line for the Pegasus check-in desk. And they were like, they looked at us like, which line are you in? We're like, we're looking for the SAS. They're like, oh, that's up there. You have to cut inside this line. So, I mean, not great. But they were helpful and they were there. And and I think that's really what made the difference. It could have been worse. It could have been Hamburg. And and like you, I got to the front of the fast lane checkpoint or whatever, and there were people trying to cut in. And everyone said, no, 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 get to the back of the line. And people just stood there like, no, I need to go. My flight's in. Like, yeah, we all have flights to catch. That's why we're here. And you just point to the back of the line. I, I literally had a conversation with one German business traveler. And I said, no, it's only been 15 minutes from the end of the line to this point. You can do that go away. And that's exactly what happened. But unlike you, I had a connection. I could not fly from Hamburg straight to New York. And Heathrow has been in the news a bit recently. But thankfully, I was originally booked on a 65-minute connection through Heathrow, which if you've ever been through Heathrow, especially these days, you know that's probably not going to work out in your favor. Mathematically impossible these days. That's not going to happen. I've done it before in the normal days, but these are not normal days. But thankfully, I, I appealed to BA on Twitter to change me to the earlier flight. And they, they thankfully did without any sort of change fees or fair difference. And I ended up with a nearly five-hour connection, which is way too much time to spend in the terminal. And it actually 
worked out well. I was able to leave the airport. I went through the e-gates, which were thankfully open, and it only took about two minutes. I hopped on the new Elizabeth line out to Paddington Station, had lunch with a friend, took it, saw some of the new stations, and came back and went through fast track security at Heathrow and probably took, I think, eight minutes to get through. So that all worked out because I know someone else who I actually met at the lounge who went through transit security, and that took 45 minutes. So in some cases, it might actually be quicker for passengers to not do the transit security transfer process and physically enter the country, go through border control, and then back through (laughs) security and into the terminal would have been much quicker than doing the actual process. I love it. I love it. All in all, using the tools at my disposal, I had a very good experience. The only hitch is we got, well, we had a bus gate at Heathrow, which sucks. Stop doing that to JFK flights. It happens all the time. I know. Very, very entitled New Yorker. Ah, quit whining. No, it sucks because they don't know how to manage it well and kept us on the bus for 15 (laughs) minutes before it left. But we ended up leaving an hour late, but then we got to JFK 20 minutes early and customs was backed up. So they held us on the plane for 15 minutes. And if that's the only thing that goes wrong these days, I'll take it. Take what you can get. Yeah, but I I think that, I mean, and our audience is a good mix of people who travel on, travel even much more than we do. And folks who who just enjoy, you know, the aviation side of things. So so I guess I say to those folks listening, we are sorry that it requires <laughs> a, an advanced degree in airportology. But it really lately. does. And we'll talk a little bit later in the show about how it's not going to get much better quickly. No. And in some cases may get worse. Yeah. If you, you need I said this before, but you use the tools at your disposal if you can afford it. If you can get global entry for entry to the US, get it. If you can get fast track for your European departures or within Europe, get it if that's an option. For the love of God, get fast track because it probably saved hours off my entry into Hamburg. And I know sometimes you can't buy it. It's only included in business class, but maybe consider that upgrade just for that just for fast pass. Yeah. It ain't great and it's not going to get better very quickly. But we'll talk more about that later in the show, I guess. Yeah, we have other things to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about what happened this week in Miami. A Red Air MD-82 on landing suffered a left main gear collapse, skidded off the runway to the left based on the photos that I've seen impacted a radio tower and caught fire. This is a former American Airlines MD-82 that was retired from American in 2014, then went on to Orange Air, flew for Laser, the Venezuelan airline, and then came over to Red Air in 2021. This is the airline's first serious incident of this kind. There were multiple reported injuries, though I haven't seen anything that says any of those were life-threatening, but we'll stay posted on that. The big issue here, I mean, aside from the aircraft's landing gear collapsing, which the NTSB and will investigate- bursting into flames is never good. Yeah, the bursting into flames is never good, but based on what I saw and the burned area, it looks like the, the flames were a result of that radio tower impacting the wing. But I don't want to say that's for sure what what caused the fire. No, but also at the same time, shout out to the Miami airport fire rescue teams because they were on the scene exceptionally quickly. Very quickly. And I I, I know the way out of that airport quite well. And and one of their 
on-field stations is quite close to where the incident was, but they were there very quickly. So yeah. props to them. The big issue that Jason and I want to talk about is an issue that we've talked about previously when there is a serious incident that involves an evacuation where you have people grabbing all of their luggage, basically. The video that's been most widely shared is a phone video taken by a gentleman who has a rollerboard in one hand, his phone and a bottle of water in the other, and I think you can see a backpack strap too. So pretty he's much filming everything the he entered that aircraft and, and probably some more along the way. Yeah. And then he goes down the slide and then that's kind of where the, the film picks up outside the aircraft and you see a gentleman and a woman kind of to the right of the video where the gentleman is pulling two rollerboard bags. Stop, 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 Not stop, good. stop, stop. The, the whole video is just very surreal. So, of course, this guy has a bag and a water bottle and he's recording it on his phone, but also the interaction between himself and the, the cabin crew on the way out of the now burning aircraft is just a real weird case in how people behave during emergencies. And I know this pointed out a whole bunch of times on Twitter, but basically he said like, okay, thanks, have a nice day. And the flight attendant said, okay, great, have a good day. As they jump out with baggage onto the evacuation slide, it was like basically <laughs> like the exact interaction you would have had had there been a jet bridge attached to the aircraft and you're walking into the customs hall. It was just very strange. Was this guy like expect like this is how he expected the flight to end? All right, we're in Miami. Like, right, we're here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it would be this hot. <laughs> like what? I know anyone listening to this podcast knows better, but if you know someone who might not know better, send them this episode of the podcast and say, hey, listen to this, because you can't keep doing this. It's already cost people their lives in other evacuations. And I guess fortuitous timing, a Qantas A330 evacuation that happened in Australia two years ago, the ATSB in Australia issued their final report, basically saying that the evacuation of the aircraft was chaotic, unordered, and there were a lot of things that could have gone better if the procedures and training in place for both the passengers via the safety video and crew announcements and the crew itself, things could have gone better. And one of the things that they mentioned was that the then safety video being shown to passengers included passengers bringing their hand luggage yeah. to the evacuation slide. Not great. It's several years ago, probably within the last five to 10 years, safety videos have definitely strayed away from their primary purpose of being a safety video. And they've, they've leaned heavily towards entertainment and they're these huge productions and they kind of forget that there's supposed to be a video about safety and how to evacuate the damn aircraft in case you need to get out to save your life. And they screwed up in a couple instances in that, in that particular video that was shown. In one case, they brought a bag to the evacuation door, which is not something you want to do. But then they also portrayed the passenger going down the slide while leaning back instead of leaning forward, which could lead to injuries. We don't these slides are very steep. You go down very fast. Yeah, if, if anyone's ever gone down a water slide, you know, it's it, lean back, you're gonna go faster. Yeah. So not great. But it was also interesting that it mentioned that the crew procedures needed to be worked on because it was a weird case where the aircraft was at the gate but not yet connected to the jet bridge and the slides were disarmed and they needed to evacuate in that 
tiny phase between disarming the doors and the jet bridge being attached, and they really didn't have a procedure for that. So there was a lot of lot of weirdness going on there. Yeah, but I guess the related thing here was that those evacuation procedures, I think, and there's been a call for this, need to be revisited to really focus on not bringing hand luggage. And I know a lot, you know, people have offered, well, why not lock the bins, have some sort of electronic locks and things like that. I feel like that just adds even more complication to it. And in getting something like that certified, I mean, the take a better part of a decade to design, certify, and then even begin installing a new aircraft. So I think there's a lot of things that can be done instead or in the meantime before you address something with a technological solution. Let's talk about JetBlue and Spirit again. We have to. We have to because there's more money involved now. Oh. $3.64 billion. Wow. Do you have $3.7 billion, Jason? I don't. Somebody should ask Frontier if they have that though. Well, Frontier says that they do, but they ain't paying. So it looks like JetBlue has taken on front runner status for – the acquisition of Spirit Airlines. They've upped their offer to $33.50 per share, and that's significantly more than Frontier's offering. And the deal structure is such that they've reiterated their commitment to divesting Spirit's holdings in New York, Boston, and Fort Lauderdale, which JetBlue argues will satisfy regulators and allow the deal to go through. Who knows if that's true at this point, but that's their argument. So it looks like at this point, if there's a vote on the 30th of June, Spirit may be acquired by JetBlue. Okay. 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 That begins a whole mess of other stuff to whether or not that deal goes through. I mean, we could be looking at a situation where JetBlue is the first winner of Spirit. They make it all the way through the process. The DOJ says, no. And then Frontier could come back and say, hey, our offer still stands. So it's just, you know, it's ping pong. Yeah. And we'll see what happens next. I guess the next bit of information will be the 30th of June. So not next week's episode, but the week after that, we should have some more news to share. Okay. Barring news before then. Can't wait to see Frontier's eventual bid to buy Allegiant. I don't know. Who knows? No, I think we could see this come back full circle is what I think. Okay. But I'm happy to be wrong as I often am, both happy and wrong. So podcast at fr24.com, if you have thoughts, prognostications, insight into this lovely JetBlue Spirit Frontier acquisition triangle. Let's talk some good news. Bra and ATR and Nesta completed the first 100%, true 100% sustainable aviation fuel commercial aircraft flight this week. So this is not a 100% of the 50% allowed that other airlines have claimed. This is 100% sustainable aviation fuel powering both engines from one city to the other on a commercial aircraft. This was an ATR 72600 operated by BRA. The registration was SEMKK. 
and it went from Malmö to Stockholm on the 21st of June. Not a long flight. But a flight. It wasn't a long flight. But a flight. It was a flight and an important It was a one. flight. And I think it's also important, and you mentioned this in the blog post, to mention that it was the good kind of sustainable aviation fuel, like the actual sustainable stuff, where it was yes. made a blend of, and I'm quoting you here, a blend of Ooh. renewable and sustainable raw materials from waste such as used cooking oil, animal fat, and waste fish fat. That was my favorite part. Yeah. I had to read that slowly. Waste fish yep. fat. It's not a, a sentence I've ever said before. But it's the good kind of sustainable aviation fuel, not the quite damaging feedstock of like corn turned into fuel, which is bad in all sorts of ways. But this is good. This is a good first step. And I'm happy to see that this wasn't the bad kind of sustainable aviation fuel. So good all around. Yeah. And so the goal here is the 2025 certification of the ATR fleet fully for 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So this has been, ATR has been using its flying test bed to test ground and flight tests up to you know certain percentages of sustainable aviation fuel. This was the first 100% flight. And hopefully we ramp up from here at this point. I mean, yeah, I also mentioned the fact that we still faced cost and supply pressures. And those we've talked about in the podcast before. And there's that. But I think this is something that we actually you know, need to mark and celebrate and say, okay, we got this far. What's next? And let's keep going. So I think that's important. Together with that, Qantas and Airbus this week announced a $200 million, Australian dollar, commitment to SAF. So that is going to basically kickstart the Australian SAF industry. And Airbus has a distinct interest in that partnership because of the Project Sunrise flights and the ability to really go for a net zero emissions aspect for those flights and making those flights worse. So I think this is a very good thing. It's a good chunk of money. It's by no means all the money that's going to be necessary, but I think it's definitely a good first step. That step in the right direction, at least. I will take what I can get these days. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with my conversation with Lawrence and talk about some of the things that his team's working on to make Flight Radar 24 better. I know that's been an oft requested segment on the podcast. So being in Stockholm for the week finally gave me a chance to sit down with Lawrence and we'll listen to our conversation next. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. I am now joined in Stockholm by Lawrence Hambrook, who is our product team lead here at Flight Radar 24. Lawrence is leading the team that makes Flight Radar 24 better on a regular basis and is the person who has the, I think, enviable job of turning me down when I throw out some crazy ideas. Lawrence, I know you're here semi against your will. I've convinced you to sit down and talk to us. So thank you for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Now, tell us a little bit more about what you do here at Flight Radio 24 and then what your team is getting up to. Yeah, so I'm the guy who says no when you ask for pink flying unicorns on the map. Well, I, once a week I ask for them and, <laughs> and once a week you turn me down. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm working a lot with uh, product strategy and roadmaps, planning what we're going to be working on in, in the future and dealing with 
requirements. Also working with a couple of talented designers to build prototypes and, and work on designs. We get a, a lot of requests and ideas uh, and suggestions. And my team's really looking into these requests to see if they're feasible and, and if they're things as a company we actually want to do. So you're triaging my request for pink unicorns and, and hopefully one day prioritizing that up at the top, right? Um, right? Maybe in the year 2026. All right. I'll take what I can get. As someone who's entrusted with adding new features, what are some of your favorite existing features? Yeah, tough question. I'm obviously a massive flight radar fan myself. There's a couple that uh, spring to mind, I guess. Um most track flights, I think that it's really intriguing. I spend way too much time trying to figure out why uh, 5,000 people are, are tracking a Cessna over, I don't know, Mexico, for example. Also filters. I mean, filtering is very powerful. It's, it's really interesting to be able to filter out aircraft and, and look for specific things. So maybe not necessarily your most favorite personally as a user, but as a product developer, what are some of the kind of the features that once they're out there in the wild, you, you love watching other people use. I think weather layers is probably one of them. We get quite a lot of feedback regarding weather layers. And there's obviously a strong connection between aviation and weather. So being able to visualize that is really amazing. Do you see a lot of the things, I mean, dealing with social media, I get to see a lot of people using our product. And I know I, I send you, mostly what I send you is people having a hard time and say, hey, let's fix this. Mm. But does it ever catch you off guard when, when you see something that, that somebody's like and you kind of didn't expect it or didn't think it would have the, the impact on somebody that it does? Yeah, there's definitely uh, use cases that, I mean, we never really imagined. We often hear of customers using our products and data for things that we never even kind of initially thought were, were possible. I think also the way that the product is kind of, it's very highly customizable. So, you know, obviously having things like the weather layers and filtering and the aeronautical charts, for example. There's a lot of things that you can really do with the, with the product. Let's talk about what we're working on now that hasn't yet made it out into the wild. Give the folks at home a little bit of insight. And I know you said, no, I can't really tell anybody much, but I, I know you can't tell anybody much, mm -hmm. but give us a little bit of insight okay. of what's coming next. Yeah, I can't really go into details, but I mean, first and foremost, we're constantly working on, on data quality and data sources. We're always looking at ways in which we can improve our data and when we really want to ensure that when someone clicks on an aircraft on the website or taps on an aircraft in the in one of our mobile apps that, you know, we want to ensure that they're, they're seeing accurate data. And we're also looking at ways in which we can add more data sources, as well as making improvements to our existing data. So that's kind of a, a constant, I guess, constantly in development for us looking into improving data quality. And another thing that I can go into a bit more detail about uh, bookmarks. So we released bookmarks on the website around six months ago now, as it was towards the end of 2021. And we're expanding that functionality. Bookmarks is something that a lot of people have been asking for for a very long time. So I'm really happy that we're able to deliver this. So we'll be releasing it on Android soon. Might possibly have already been released, depending on when you're listening to this. And iOS is coming up shortly after the Android release. The idea here is to make things 
cross-platform so you can create bookmarks on the website and, and get them in the apps and vice versa and the cross-platform side of things that's really where we want to go in the future so we will be looking into more cross-platform functionality so people can really maximize the use of their, their subscriptions between the website and the mobile apps. Another thing I can't really go into a lot of details on, but there's quite a lot of data that we have that we're currently displaying on the website that we also want to show in the mobile apps. So we really want to extend the functionality there in the mobile app to show more data and be more in line with the website. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to be able to get that released hopefully later this year. I tried to pry as much out of him as I possibly could, and I'm thankful that I got that much. I can also just mention the flying <laughs> flying pink unicorns, right? 2026, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's all on kind of the web and the app side, but your team also works on the B2B side. And I know some folks from airlines and airports are listening to the podcast on a regular basis. So what are you what are you cooking up for them? Yeah, exactly. The B2B side, it's very interesting for us. And our B2B team has been working quite a lot, especially earlier this year, kind of going out to meet some of our customers and, and really understand how they're using our products and also gathering their feedback and, and ideas and suggestions for improvements. You know, obviously, aviation you know, has been looking at ways to save money. And we see things like, you know, a much more fuel efficient aircraft in use today. And, and we really believe that our data can be used to make the aviation industry more efficient. I really can't go into a lot of details, but we definitely have plans in the upcoming months to work on improving our B2B products and, and services. Fantastic. I pried it out of Lawrence earlier and he told me I couldn't record it, but it does sound awesome. Mm. And so now I'm looking very much forward to hearing more about that as soon as possible, Lawrence, as soon sure. as possible. So these are ideas that we've had and nurtured and grown and things like that. Where where do some of the other ideas come from? You know, are you getting emails from people? Where are you taking other inspiration from? Good question. So, I mean, we have multiple different channels. Obviously, our support team is dealing with a lot of contacts from end users that come to us with ideas and suggestions. We also have app reviews. People are kind of constantly leaving app reviews with ideas and suggestions. So it's really interesting to read through the reviews. And then, as I mentioned before, on the B2B side, our B2B team is getting contacts from customers with ideas and suggestions. And they come to us asking, can we do this? Can we do that? And yeah, it's really interesting. But no, there's ideas and suggestions coming kind of from all around. So if you do have a suggestion after listening to what Lawrence has had to say, send us an email at podcast at fr24.com and we will be happy to send it along to Lawrence. If enough people ask for the pink unicorns on the map, he has to do it. Looking forward right? to that one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Lawrence Hembrook is our product team lead here at Flight Radio 24 and has been gracious enough to join me semi-against his will to record a small segment for the podcast. So for that, I thank you, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's now time for another round of things that airports and airlines are doing to ensure that they can actually operate their schedules. And as it turns out, the easiest thing for them to do is to just not operate flights. Okay. The latest, yeah, I know. 
The latest this week is EasyJet a few days ago said that they were canceling a variety of flights and will operate 90% of their pre-pandemic capacity in July, August, and September, so for the next three months, and that's about a 7% reduction than what they would have. So they've blamed tight labor market for crew, a long wait time for security checks, and of course, good old-fashioned Brexit on some of these things. But basically, they had too many flights and not enough people. We'll see if that works out for them. Sticking kind of in the European area, Gatwick has capped its flights for July and August. So instead of operating about 900 flights on peak days, Gatwick will cap July flights to 825 operations per day and 850 in August, hoping to avoid some of the things that have happened there over the past few weeks. It's getting better because they're figuring it out a little bit, but this really seems like something that should have been taken into account before. Was there an overly optimistic scenario where airlines thought that they could hire the right number of people to operate these flights? Did they think that they could get away with not having the people in place to operate those flights? I don't know which is more true or if they're both equally true, but either way, that was never going to work. No, no. Meanwhile, stateside, just this morning, United announced that it was going to trim, I think, 12% of its flights or 50 per day, I think it was, from its Newark hub. Since Newark for the last couple of months has just been an unmitigated disaster operationally, that kind of ripples throughout the entire at least the Northeast and ripples surely throughout the country in some aspects. But this one is less of a crew or employee shortage so much as Newark's just going to be Newark. And there's a lot going on there. There are too many flights for the airport's overall capacity. There's some runway construction that's coming up. There's the Terminal A expansion that's wrapping up hopefully by the end of the year that has some terminal space restricted or some gates restricted, that is. And to United, JetBlue, Spirit, FAA, Port Authority have all been pointing fingers at each other for months at this point, yelling that there's too many flights, this has to change. And, and finally, somebody has blinked in this case, and that would be United with the reduction of a few of its flights. And FAA has given them permission to do that for the remainder of the summer, while completely disregarding and ignoring its own issues of staffing availability for its centers to keep flights operating, which is a constant issue for Newark as well. Yeah. So they'll take 50 flights out of date. So what it looks like they're going to do is reduce frequencies to some destinations, not cut destinations out of Newark. Construction, FAA staffing, all sorts of good fun stuff leading to just a poor experience in Newark. That's nothing necessarily new. A poor experience at Newark? No. It's just more acute right now. Yes, it is particularly bad. Let's stay in New York, and I think this is the first time that this podcast has ever covered a hit and run. What kind of hit and run? Indeed. What kind of hit and run? That story well, bizarre. The, it, it, and it just keeps getting even more bizarre. So at JFK, there are areas of the airport where aircraft are in very close proximity, and in previous incidents, aircraft have hit one another. I think the most famous 
impact was when the Air France A380 spun a Delta CRJ. There have also been- That was a good one. That was was a long time ago, but I remember that one well. Yeah, I, I think it doesn't hurt that that one was caught on video. Then there was the you know some wingtip fence issues and things like that. So we don't actually know where these two aircraft impacted, but an Ita Airways still in old Alitalia livery. So this plays in in a minute. Impacted an Air France triple seven somehow while the Air France flight was arriving and the Ita Airways flight was departing, and so the Air France flight calls the ground frequency and says, hey, they just hit us. Don't let them take off. And the ground controller at JFK has A, trouble understanding what the Air France pilot is saying, and then B, doesn't care or it just doesn't want to be bothered with it. And so he says, well, go call the tower. And not like call the tower frequency. Here's a phone Gives them the phone number to the tower. Which, I mean, I guess maybe is a better way to get a hold of somebody in the tower because if the phone rings, they pick it up. But the flight had departed by then. By the time the Air France said, hey, they hit us, the ground controller said, what do you want me to do about it? Go call the tower. They call the tower. The ETA flight has gone. Yeah. The whole sequence of events is, is very strange. Listening to the audio put together by, I guess, it's Fast Aviation, there doesn't seem to be much urgency coming from the Air France pilots and that might just be – I don't know what to boil that down to. But it doesn't seem like the urgency was conveyed enough to the ground controller who really didn't seem to be bothered by what was being reported at all. Remember, he, he's just a guy in the tower and if I'm getting this right in my mind, he could just turn to his left and say to the whoever's working the tower frequency, hey, don't let ITA depart. They just hit Air France and that, that should have been that, I think if that is truly how it works in the tower, which I'm pretty sure it does. The whole situation was just very weird. And then eventually the ITA flight was contacted and they said, ah, well, we have, we have no issues. We're just going to keep on We're going. Fine. We're fine. fine. Is that aircraft still on the ground in Rome? Or The Air France 777 is still on the ground in New York. So this happened local time the evening of June 17th. The Air France aircraft is still on the ground. The ETA Airways flight, that once it was on the ground, stayed on the ground a little bit longer than it normally would have, but has since returned to service and has flown, oh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine flights. So whatever the impact was, it obviously wasn't serious enough to keep the ETA Airways a330 on the ground, but was serious enough to keep the Air French 777 on the ground. So it'll be interesting to see if there's a report of some kind out there, uh, if the FAA investigates, if the, the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey investigates. I don't know who would investigate this, but one assumes that Air France will be billing ETA for whatever damage to the aircraft. Yeah, very strange all around. Not really the way you'd expect a situation like this to be handled by pretty much anyone that handled it. I guess it was one of those unfortunate moments where an aircraft pushed back from a gate at JFK and actually took off relatively quickly and they weren't able to to figure it out before they did take off. Yeah. So hopefully we hear more about what actually happened eventually. Let's close the show with some business news. We have LATAM on its way out of chapter 11. The judge in the case has approved 
basically their plan, and they are now moving on their way out of Chapter 11. So that's good to see. Garuda Indonesia also secured creditor approval for their reorganization. So that'll be interesting to see how that proceeds. Well, again, the last thing we've got is EasyJet buying more aircraft. Can they buy more pilots to operate them too? They're going to have to. Jason, how many planes do they buy? A lot. 56 320neo family aircraft for delivery from 2026 to 2029. So hopefully things will be figured out by then. They're also converting 18 existing 320neo orders to the 321neo because everybody loves that aircraft now. Yeah. It's kind of funny how the A321, and I think we may have talked about this before, but the, the A321 went from this kind of also ran aircraft. An outcast that nobody wanted. Yeah. And no one really knew what to do with. It turns out that if you make it go a little farther and put some better engines on it, it turns out to be a very attractive plane for a lot of airlines. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time, the A321 was was kind of shunned. US Airways was actually by far the largest operator of the type of the CO. And they, they knew something. They had an idea that that aircraft could could live up to its full potential. Now, here we go. Everyone wants it. Who wants a, a 320 when you can have a 321 and put another 30 people on board? I mean, that's not a bad idea. Nope. Yeah. So this was episode 169 of AvTalk. We're really working our way. We should start thinking about what we're going to do for episode 200. Mm, that'll mm. sneak up on us. If they always do. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy what we're doing, or if you say, I just listened to this podcast and I've got some things to say, by all means, do say them. You can email us directly at podcast at fr24.com, or you can go wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating or review. Those help other people find the podcast and broaden our reach so that we can keep doing what we are doing when we are doing it. This has been episode 169. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.